Welcome to the San Diego Psychological Association's podcast, Diving Into Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Carcel. This podcast has been developed with the intent to inform and educate the general public and providers and should not be relied upon for any other purpose. The content, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not those of the San Diego Psychological Association. Today's guest is Dr. Amanda Kahn. Dr. Kahn is a licensed psychologist and research scholar specializing in the assessment and treatment of trauma sequelae. Dr. Kahn is especially interested in developing novel approaches such as using psychedelics to heal treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. She has published numerous peer-reviewed journal articles and writes op-eds for Stress Points, Medium, and Psychology Today. Welcome, Dr. Khan, and thank you for being on our show. Great. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Yes, this is a wonderful topic. When we talk about traditional therapeutic approaches to array of diagnoses and to symptoms with psychological concerns, you know, we think about more conventional approaches, right? And what I've read in recent research is that there's been a little bit of a stall in conventional psychopharmological interventions and therapeutic interventions. And some of this has shown limited efficacy for people who are suffering from trauma. So I'm curious, you know, starting with your work with psychedelics, mm. maybe we can start by defining psychedelics and its use in therapy. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that, Michelle. I think it's really important to sort of point out that it's not that our current treatments aren't effective. They just could be much more effective than what we're seeing. You know, about half of folks are getting better, but which is great. And but what's happening for the other half, right? And so I think that's where um, psychedelics can serve as as an additional um, intervention here. So yeah, when we when we think about psychedelics, really what that means is it's referring to a group of psychoactive substances that bring on non-ordinary states of consciousness, which sort of grossly translates to pronounced alterations in mood and perception and cognition. In mainstream sort of media, you're seeing psychedelics as sort of an all-encompassing term, but really classic psychedelics are traditionally thought of as psilocybin or magic mushrooms, uh, LSD, ayahuasca, which is a brew that contains a psychoactive component, which is a really long compound that we'll just call DMT. And then there's also sort of atypical psychedelics and dissociatives, which include ketamine and ibogaine. And then there's MDMA, which is not technically a psychedelic. It's, it's more considered an empathogen. In other words, it sort of opens up empathic feelings and, and cognitive states. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, what's interesting is this is a, a new paradigm in many ways, despite the fact that psychedelics have been known for many decades. You know, we often think about them in a, you know, reference to things like Woodstock or things like the 60s, where, you know, we see such a, um, a wonderful explanation of how they can expand the mind. And of course, then there's the flip side where there's people who are concerned about the use of psychedelics due to addiction concerns and just kind of a whole other side of the coin, side of the spectrum, so to speak. But, you know, one of the things that I think it's really important is to explore novel compounds 
in order to offer opportunities for people who do have, mm-hmm. you know, resistance um, with traditional treatment, especially suffering from trauma. You know, so I think maybe that that is a, a good place for us to talk a little bit about how are psychedelics being used to treat psychiatric illness mm-hmm. and which disorders have been studied so far? Yeah, you know, and, and just to sort of importantly first name that you, something you sort of touched on already is that these substances have been used for hundreds and thousands of years by indigenous cultures across the globe for healing and for spirituality, not just for healing, you know, what we might think of as pathological things, but for general well-being and spirituality. So we're not really reinventing the wheel here. And there were actually like a ton of psychedelic studies that were being done in the 1950s and 60s showing their therapeutic potential really across a range of ailments. And that was until they were classified as a Schedule One drug in the 1970s, which definitively shut down therapeutic research. So speaking now, you know, maybe to the more contemporary clinical models and research, mm-hmm. psychedelics are being studied um, you know, across a range of, of methodologies. And so that includes clinical trials and open label studies. There's also neuroimaging studies and healthy volunteers. And there are survey studies and people who are using these substances sort of independently as well. And all of this is providing really rich data <laughs> that is seeming to sort of converge into a a robust picture of how these substances are affecting consciousness and the psyche and our biology. But to just sort of, you know, get more clinical, looking at the clinical trial research, Mm -hmm. um, psychedelics are are mostly being delivered in what you said earlier, this medicine-assisted therapy format. There is one exception to that, which is ketamine, which is mostly delivered as a monotherapy which means that just there's no accompanying psychotherapy. But there is actually some, this is in the process of being changed right now, and and more research is being done showing the efficacy of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, um, actually for PTSD. A new study came out recently. But for MDMA and psilocybin and LSD, these compounds, they're they're being delivered in a a medicine-assisted therapy format. And what that means is that people, they're not just handed these substances and told, all right, Good luck. <laughs> Let us know what happens. <laughs> you know, there's there's quite a bit of prep work involved. And I think it's really important to point out that like anything can be misused, right? Caffeine can be misused. Work can be misused. Um, relationships, the internet, right? Exercise, all of these things can be misused. And so it's not that psychedelics can't be misused. But it's more about can we use these, can, can we set up these psychedelics to be used in a medicinal way? In this assisted therapy format, what that looks like is, is quite a bit of prep work uh, on the front end, um, really focusing on um, making sure that, again, these, these compounds are taken in optimal conditions to facilitate healing. So I'm sort of referring to this phrase known as set and setting, which basically means the mindset and the physical space that you're in leading up to, during, and following a psychedelic dosing session. So the prep sessions usually include um, discussing the person's personal history and the intentions for the journey 
and also providing some context for the range of experiences that can happen. And that includes challenging experiences, Mm -hmm. which are not uncommon in psychedelic dosing sessions. I think what's what's really different, you know, we've been sort of already talking about how it's different from traditional therapies, you know, compared to traditional talk therapy, where in psychedelic assisted therapy, the therapist is really playing a very minimal, non-directive role during the actual dosing session. You know, rather than the therapist sort of leading the session, patients are encouraged to, to turn inward and to move towards their experiences, especially challenging ones, and to trust their inner healing wisdom. And, you know, if we compare this to traditional talk therapy, you know, you, you mentioned your, um, your work with trauma and PTSD. And, you know, as clinicians, we're trying to get patients to approach trauma, we're trying to get them to have different perspectives, to practice forgiveness, to be more self-compassionate, but it's us exerting this force onto these, onto our patients, right? We're trying, trying to get patients to approach these things from outside themselves, which is really founded upon this belief, which is the opposite of psychedelics, which sort of operates from the idea that whatever is spontaneously innately arising within a person during the dosing session mm-hmm. is what needs healing. To add to what you were saying earlier, there is a difference between clinically controlled environments where there is supervision with dosing, a protocol being administered, etc., versus the possibility of abuse where this is typically the person is getting the compound or the substance and using it at their leisure without any guidance. So I agree with that. And yes, this approach is wonderful in that it grants the person the opportunity to heal from an intrinsic space instead of depending on or being guided by external factors. This reminds me of a training I did years ago that was regarding novel compound treatment. And it was a video that the researchers were showing of a veteran with severe PTSD. And it was a very emotional video and it's a very emotional case. Um, You know, basically this uh, veteran slash patient had been in Iraq and had done two tours in Iraq and he had witnessed things that no one should ever witness. You know, the things that you see in movies that really are just so difficult um, for a person to overcome. And, you know, he talked about, you know, seeing people be killed. He witnessed a friend die. Uh, He participated in these, you know, uh, different variations of combat that caused him so much pain emotionally. And when he returned home, he had been treated with, you know, traditional psychotherapy, with the traditional psychopharmacological medications. And in his case, Unfortunately, due to the severity of his symptoms, he was treatment resistant. Um, Many people can benefit from traditional psychotherapy. I want to add that, you know, most people can and do report benefits from this. However, with level of severity, sometimes it can be very hard to break the parts of us that are so entrenched in the pain that we feel. And because his symptoms were that way, Um, you know, he just couldn't get the thought out of his head that he was a murderer, that he had done so much damage while he was in combat. And he had so much shame, so much self-loathing. When you heard him speak, it was agonizing of how he described himself. 
And it got to a point where he attempted suicide. He attempted to take his life, but fortunately they were able to save him in time. Um, he was desperate. His wife was desperate. A part of him wanted to live. Um, another part of him wanted to die because of what he experienced. And that's when they enrolled in a clinical trial for MDMA assisted psychotherapy. And what I saw was remarkable. Um, he was filmed doing his first dosing session and it was, it was something that I, I have never been able to personally see so quickly in traditional psychotherapy. Um, within the first session and midway through, by the time he, he was at that midway point, he was already crying and emotionally processing everything about what had happened. And it, it, this, this was able to allow him to bypass the parts of him and access the parts of his brain that were completely blocked by his trauma. He was able to forgive himself by the time we got to the midway point of this first dosing session, he was crying. His wife was crying. There wasn't a dry eye in the house, whether it was in the video or whether it was, you know, the audience, it was so emotional. And, you know, that, that really stuck with me. And that's just one of many examples of patients who have benefited from this form of treatment. And I think it's important that we talk more about how this is helping so many it was really powerful to witness. I know I'm going to sidetrack a little bit here from that story, but I also want to go back and, and discuss how you were talking about traditional healing and the use of novel compound treatment and how this has been around for hundreds of years in traditional therapies. And, you know, I have a indigenous background as well. And, you know, this is in my culture, it's in various indigenous cultures, and it's been around for such a long time. Basically, we're not reinventing the wheel here, and many different cultures have utilized novel compounds in traditional health. Given this, are there any cultural considerations we should be thinking about? So, for example, does this treatment approach work with diverse groups? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Yeah, there's so much here. And maybe I'll start with how valuable to have gotten to watch that session. And MDMA is you know, of, of the uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy formats, MDMA is perhaps the most active on the therapist in the sense that it can be sort of a 50-50 non-directive sort of participation versus letting the participant or patient go inward. With psychedelic, um, more classic psychedelic sessions, um, you can't talk much. So like <laughs> trying to have the therapist sort of probe more is just sort of not really um, feasible. So with psilocybin, with LSD, there's there's even less like therapist role there. Um, yeah, so with the considerations, uh, cultural considerations, there's, there's so many. Um, and one thing is even in thinking about the non-directive stance inherent in the model is sort of a way to rebalance in some sense the the sort of inherent power differential that has really become quite characteristic of our approaches these days. There's a strong movement as these medicines become more mainstream and, you know, companies are coming in and they're creating and trying to patent. And there's a lot of capitalism basically starting to get inserted into this movement. What a lot of um, champions and um, advocates of psychedelic therapies have has sort of pushed out is this message of slowing down, slowing down. And because when we're trying to speed out this research, 
we're basically only par getting participants who are white from middle class or upper class areas. And that's unfortunately been a lot of the psychedelic um, research to date. Monica Williams, who's an incredible researcher and has really been a champion of trying to get racial trauma recognized as a legitimate thing in the DSM, um, was actually part of MAPS for a while and was trying to um, get greater diversity in the MDMA trials. And they were recruiting around the Connecticut area. Um, they totally changed the way that they were marketing. You know, the original marketing was very like, do you have PTSD? participate in this research trial, question mark. And they changed the advertising to include faces of people that included the diverse array of, of providers on the trial. They had images of people of color experiencing trauma, explicitly named that racial trauma was a thing and that this matters, really trying to create safety. Um, unfortunately, they had some difficulties with um, getting things in on time and, and the study didn't actually get to be completed. Um, so there's a lot of cultural considerations just as far as even participants in these trials right now. Um, and MAPS recently did an entire training where they only trained clinicians of color and it was the first training of its kind. Um, so now there's, I think the cohort was somewhere between 50 and 85 people. So now there's at least 50 to 85 people of color who are trained in the delivery of MDMA-assisted therapy according to the MAPS protocol um, but there's so much more that needs to be done there. And what's most important is that we don't lose the origins of these medicines. They ha also have a sort of complicated history where Marina Sabina, who was sort of the person who really found psilocybin as a psychedelic healing mechanism, she sort of got kicked out of the community in a lot of ways as sort of white men continued to take these medicines and bring it to Western culture. And she ended up getting ostracized by her own community. So there's there's a lot of history here that's really important. And especially when we think about, you know, a cultural appropriation. And so, yeah, it's a great question. And there's many, many facets to, to be aware of. Yes. And I'm glad that the more we talk about this in our day and age, you know, the more we talk about diversity and and, you know, this is definitely, a, again, a paradigm shift in every single sense of the word. I'm happy to hear that, uh, you know, there's more participation by people of color, diverse, you know, minority groups that can definitely benefit from this type of treatment and from this research. So I'm glad to hear that uh, we're making advances on all ends there. So slowly but surely, but hopefully as we go, more of a push. Um, definitely not enough. Yeah, definitely. And there's, you know, there's <laughs> right. something that's also been um, really important is just sort of the general safety of people of color to use psychedelics. You know, if we think about We've talked about this recently, mm -hmm. like how would you feel seeing a white person in the park on psychedelics versus how you see a person of color in the park on psychedelics and who gets the police called on them? Right. So just like the lack of safety for people of color to even participate in this research is a real thing. And it's one reason why they are not participating yes. in this research, because it's actually not safe. Um, you know, and that that really dovetails nicely, I think, with the uh, decriminalization that's happening across the United States with pretty substantial drug reform policy. Agreed. There's also um, reparations that need to be made. You know, there's a, a succession of examples that, you know, have happened in the past of things that 
people of color, it's just been so unfortunate. And it typically in the medical model, but this is exactly that, right? We're talking about the medical model along with the psychological application of, you know, these novel compounds. So I think it's good that we continue this conversation, you know, no matter what. So if anyone's listening and they're saying, you know, I have been working on my trauma and I'm not really getting these results, but I am fearful or I'm concerned that they're able to express that to their practitioner. They're able to express that to the researcher, you know, so that way they know that they're being heard. I think that's really important that we continue to deliver that message. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, You know, I think it, it gets at the idea that expecting trauma alleviation in a state of ongoing trauma is, is unreasonable, right? And that is the truth for people of color. And so really needing to have strong clinician competency around that. You're doing post-psychedelic integration work, which is basically sort of harvesting the fruits of your psychedelic experiences. That's something that needs to be brought in regularly. Of course. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. I I want to talk to the general public here. You know, I think we have a, a diverse group of listeners. And, you know, for someone who's been struggling with trauma, you know, I think it's good that we talk a little bit about what is trauma, right? What is that? What does that word mean? What does this look like? Symptoms? And how can we alleviate this, you know, their symptoms? How can we alleviate, you know, whether it is a combination of traditional um, therapies, you know, and is this potentially something that can be for them? I know this is kind of a broad question, but I'm curious, you know, can we talk a little bit about how to, you know, define trauma and how does psychedelics help? Yes. Big questions. Wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess the first is to just say, you know, as far as actual regulatory indications go, MDMA is designated as a breakthrough therapy for PTSD, and it's the only one that is designated for for, um, PTSD. Psilocybin and ketamine are breakthrough therapies for treatment-resistant depression. But beyond that, there's no no, actual regulatory indications here. But I think how we define trauma. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, personally, I have a lot of problems with the DSM. Right. When I think about the DSM, I'm like, well, what is this trying to do? It's trying to name something so it can identify it and then develop a treatment for it. Okay, that's a that's good ethos. But I think we get really lost by trying to restrict experiences. And when we think about who's created the DSM and the origins of that sort of Eurocentric white cis male colonial psychiatric model, like then we can really identify a lot of problems here, right? When I think about trauma, I certainly think about how the DSM-5 would characterize a criterion A, you know, these life, you know, potentially life-threatening experiences. Mm -hmm. And those are certainly trauma, absolutely. But I also consider trauma basically to be anything that substantially impacts a person's biology and psyche. And these are intricately related things, the psyche and and biology. So that for me can include, uh, you know, I've done a lot of my research and and clinical work in in veterans. And so for me, that includes things like moral injury. It includes systemic betrayal. Mm -hmm. It includes traumatic loss. It includes race and discrimination related experiences, uh, emotional abuse. So it includes a lot of things for me. And, And I think that broader lens is actually in line with how psychedelics work, 
which we can talk about in a minute. But um, so I, I consider trauma to be a very broad, uh, broad construct. And what we know is that trauma sequelae are vast. It's it's not just PTSD. Independent sequelae include mm-hmm. major depression, anxiety disorders, substance use, eating disorders, somatoform disorders, psychosis, personality disorders. So like by no means mm-hmm. are is PTSD the only trauma-related diagnosis. In fact, all of these diagnoses are more often than not trauma-related mm-hmm. disorders. I completely agree. Um, the irony is I actually, when I talk to my clients, that is basically, you said it so much more elegantly than I do, but yes, you know, the, anything that affects us, that impacts us to the level where it changes our behavior, changes the way that we engage, changes our functionality as a person, that can be considered trauma, right? So, you know, of course we unpack this and in a subjective idiosyncratic way, you know, for the person to describe it in their way, their words, their experience, and that we take all of those things into consideration when we're working with the client and helping them, you know, succeed and and working through this. One of the things that you mentioned is the, you know, efficacy. We talked about that a little bit earlier, Mm -hmm. that yes, traditional psychotherapy does have success rates. We do see people that are able to thrive on this. Um, But I think it's important that we talk about for those who are benefiting from traditional uh, psychotherapy or, or traditional methodologies, Let's talk a little bit about how they can learn more about psychedelics and treatment, and this can alleviate psychiatric illness. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. There's been just so much work being done on this topic, so I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, and even, I guess, just to name that there's the the amount of indications that are being studied right now are really vast. So it's MDMA for alcohol use, for reducing anxiety in autism, psilocybin and LSD for anxiety related to cancer and demoralization, smoking cessation, ayahuasca for PTSD and complicated grief. I mean, there's just so much happening right now. And there's also studies that are going to be coming out for psilocybin for anorexia and bipolar disorder, phantom limb pain, Alzheimer's. So this panacea that's happening is sort of driven by the fact that psychedelics, what they what they seem to do is that they work at getting to the root of the root cause of many disorders rather than focusing on suppressing symptoms, which is exactly our current psychopharmacological approach. It's, it's can we suppress um, symptoms? To much extent, our, our psychotherapeutic approaches as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. So psychedelics Across across these converging lines, there's there's some general psychological themes um, that tend to emerge, and they actually map really nicely onto the neurobiological findings too. So, basically, psychedelics work by by making the unconscious conscious and allowing for people to not just see that like they might in traditional talk therapy, but also have a full embodiment of the experience. So sort of across psychedelics, there's a general theme of visiting and confronting past traumas and other, you know, painful or salient, you know, adverse personal experiences, basically. These substances have a way of basically unlocking the trauma, um, allowing the person to finally feel 
and and process the full range of truths that are there. But within this sort of uh, expanded and ego-relaxed state, um, that's more true for classics than, than for empathogens like MDMA. But basically, the substances allow us to approach our, our personal identities and our histories with greater openness, greater understanding and forgiveness and compassion. And this window also, it, it seems to allow people to see much more clearly the patterns of their mind and their behaviors that have been really keeping them stuck. And it's provided a, a broader context for them to understand these patterns. Basically, people who are participating in these trials are reporting significant increases in self-forgiveness, mm-hmm. in self-compassion, in psychological flexibility, reductions in experiential avoidance. I mean, these are key mechanisms that we are theorizing are maintaining these disorders. Um, and there's even reports of forgiving abusers. You know, this really incredibly open and understanding state. And with classic psychedelics, they have sort of an added benefit from MDMA in, in which they can, they can occasion mystical or spiritual experiences, which basically sort of trans, it's, it's sort of ineffable. And that's a common theme that you'll read in research, this ineffable state. Um, but it's, if I could put words to it, it's sort of like this experience of, of unity, of oneness, transcendence of self and time and space. And what I think is really important for for trauma, this strong sense of connection to others, to the natural world, to ancestors and lineage and spiritual deities. And what the research is showing that the strength of these mystical experiences is strongly related to positive treatment outcomes. And to me, I'm, I'm really jazzed about this because <laughs> that to me gets at, at sort of the root of psychic mm-hmm. pain. You know, if we, if we think about um, psychiatric illness really across the board, we can think of these dor- disorders as disorders of disconnection, right? <laughs> our, our folks, when we're sitting across from them, we can hear how narrowly they're, they're thinking, how narrowly, you know, we all are thinking when we think about our experiences and you know, we have thoughts that we don't belong mm-hmm. or that we're damaged and that nobody will want us. And what these medicines seem to do is ultimately wake people up mm-hmm. to the connections that are actually present in their life. Um, you know, some after taking psilocybin, people report like really strong feelings of belongingness to nature. Rather than viewing nature as a separate thing to be enjoyed, they feel a part mm-hmm. of nature. So I think these medicines are really, you know, they're bringing back the spirituality and the social aspects of of mental health and clinical psychology that just seem to have gotten, you know, really lost in the medicalization process, I think. Mm -hmm. That's remarkable. It really is, you know, and, you know, if we're talking about it just, you know, from a, a matter of just the neurological, right, there's just natural defenses that the brain does for people. When we experience any type of trauma, the brain is attempting to protect us, even if it's a maladaptive way of protection, whether that's the symptomology of eating disorders or the symptomology of self-harm, suicidality. These are things that are symptoms of great pain, 
And typically, we do have a lot of distorted thinking patterns that occur in this. So I'm imagining, you know, as you're talking about this, and, and again, this is not my area, so I'm so glad that you're speaking to this. It helps almost unblock the parts of us that are trying to protect us, but usually in a maladaptive way, it unblocks those parts and gives those parts a chance. I'm thinking a little bit of of Dr. Richard Schwartz here and internal family systems, these different parts of us that try to protect and try to do these things to, even if it is maladaptive, it's what people know, it's what they know, it's what we know. But this sounds like it just kind of helps put those parts aside or heal them in their own proper way. And give a person a chance to feel a holistic connection. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. That was so beautifully said. And I love IFS. I think it's such a great model. And if you could even expand on that, it's not just like healing these parts, but it's actually really living that IFS model where you're now completely loving this part. You're, you're appreciating this part. It's not just that this part is neutral or you understand it or you accept it. Mm-hmm. There's an added piece to it that's there. You know, and, and yes, from a neurobiological standpoint, what we're seeing is really consistent with the subjective reports. On the whole, basically, psychedelics appear to relax rigid functional connectivity patterns, especially in the default mode network, right, which is the area responsible for the self and autobiographical memory. There's decreased amygdala reactivity to threats, and there's increases in synaptogenesis, which basically means there's increased neural plasticity. So these medicines are creating an opportunity to reopen, process and embody, and reconsolidate how we think and feel. Basically, an opportunity to rewire, um, which is really unique, you know, and probably why we're not able to see those same effects in traditional you know, CBT, we, we can't expect the whole brain to rewire necessarily from these things. We, we need a little help. As you said, our brain is a sophisticated right. um, survival mechanism that creates probabilities in order to protect ourselves. Uh, Robin Kahart Harris, who's was in the UK and is actually just announced that he's shifting um, here to the US and he's going to be at UCSF, which is super exciting. He has this beautiful model that's founded in neurobiology called Rebus or the relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. And if I highly recommend looking at the model, it basically gets into brain entropy and the sort of dynamic and interactive effects of, of neural and neuromodulator systems sort of changing how our brain works creating these hyperplastic windows for us to sort of relearn um, and re relearn how to associate to ourselves and others. This is phenomenal. This is just, just such a breakthrough because as we've seen in traditional therapies, it takes a long time for those defenses and for this opportunity for us to accept these def- you know parts of us that we've created to protect us. And even if they are maladaptive, again, it's what people are used to. It's what we're used to. If we have an opportunity to embrace that holistically and to do this on a level like you're speaking, it, it really is quite a paradigm shift and quite exciting. So um, I am so looking forward to the continued research on this. And, and I'm so glad that, um, you know, we're really bringing this information out there so people can understand it and not feel um, concerned and that they can get their questions answered. You know, this is not something, again, it's interesting because we have this history of the war on drugs, so to speak, right? And yes, this is important. You know, addiction and the history of working with people who have addiction is important, significant, and is not to be dismissed. And 
this isn't that. And I think it's very important that, like you said, you know, people who are, we can be addicted to different things at different times, you know, but when we think about substances, this doesn't pertain to that model. So I'm glad that, you know, we're clarifying that for anyone who's curious, for anyone who's been struggling, for anyone who has trauma, has been in treatment in a, a traditional sense, and that they haven't had the opportunity to experience what we're talking about today and, and not only just novel, you know, compounds, but also novel approaches to treatment for PTSD or any type of trauma, as you've referenced. It's really profound when we think about like what we're hearing from participants is basically that not only are these things helping them, right? We're seeing the treatment, you know, the the symptom reductions that we need in order to continue to get funding from these agencies and whatnot. But people are reporting that these experiences are in the top five and sometimes the most meaningful, spiritually meaningful experiences that they've had in their life. I have never personally heard that recounted in response to an antidepressant medication or even psychotherapy that I've delivered myself for folks. Um, I don't know about you, but you know, it's, it's not just that we're helping these people, you know, loosen these, these rigid structures that have been restrictive, but they're having profound experiences. And it's not that it's a one size one and done. What these medicines seem to do is they, they really help expand the window of tolerance. So people are more able to tolerate these challenging experiences, and they feel more self-efficacious when they go back into their lives. And they're more willing to show up authentically in therapy sessions. So most often you hear that people are more motivated to go to therapy after this. It's not that they are done with their work. So it's really just creating this portal for people to have a chance to rewire and reset and it's moving them towards, you know, a a more holistic healing approach. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit um, about the war on drugs and I think it's really important that we address this and, Aren't psychedelics part of the war on drugs that we're fighting? Or there's there's really the difference, isn't it? Hmm. Yes, thank you. Critical question. And, you know, it really, really to answer this, we have to look back at, at the origins of psychedelics in the U.S. and the war on drugs. So even just taking a moment, when we think about the war on drugs, we're talking about the demonization and stigmatization of the effects of the substances and the criminalization of its users, Right. So some of Nixon's cabinet has actually been pretty outspoken about this recently. They've basically flat out admitted that the war on drugs was really a strategy to silence anti-war messages and oppress Black people. So basically by getting the public to stigmatize and criminalize quote-unquote hippies and their free love, anti-war, anti-capitalism ethos, the, the government was pretty effectively able to battle the, the counter culture that was arising during the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, the effects that these, that these drugs were having was that it was making people less materialistic, which really poses a direct threat to corporate establishment. And, you know, the counterculture was also fueling movements of racial equality, women's rights, environmental advocacy. And this was all on the heels of about 20 years of research in in thousands of of patients showing preliminary effects of how LSD and psilocybin might help alleviate psychosocial and spiritual suffering, you know, and alcohol misuse. And the criminalization of these substances really just stopped all of that. 
And the war on drugs has now led to millions of people, black people and other people of color being mass incarcerated, which up until really recently, nothing was really being done about this. But now we're seeing this movement of, of states across the United States, you know, decriminalizing psychedelics um, and in states like Oregon, decriminalizing all substances. So this drug reform policy is, is really deeply connected to having, you know, h- higher levels of social justice. And in my opinion, you know, towards decriminalizing non-ordinary states of consciousness, which is very much a part of our culture. I actually, it makes me laugh sometimes when I think about like those commercials from the war on drugs and dare, like this is your brain on drugs, but really like made people afraid of brain changes, which is exactly what we're trying to do with therapy. We want brain changes. We're trying to bring on psychic healing and loosening of rigid, painful ways of relating to ourselves and others. So it really fascinates me that um, psychiatric medications are promoted as being effective because they change your brain, but psychedelics are demonized for doing the exact same thing, but better. The psychedelics, uh, there's research at this point, it's really strong that psychedelics are not addictive. They do not have addictive properties. Time and again, research shows that psychedelics, specifically psilocybin and LSD and MDMA, which are classified as a Schedule One. When you try to redose too soon, like within a week or two, you basically have no effect. So you can't misuse them this way. And that's, you know, in contrast to cocaine, which has very addictive properties, but is a Schedule II drug. So it just doesn't make sense. That said, ketamine does have a psychologically addictive component. It doesn't seem to facilitate physical dependence, but it's important to recognize that it does have a psycho- psychologically addictive component. And so it's something to keep, you know, keep in mind as people are using these to heal themselves. Uh, prevalence for ketamine addiction has been pretty low historically, partially because it's quite hard to get a hold of, honestly. Um, and we have been seeing a, a little bit of a bump, but it's also used to treat addiction. Like there's pretty convincing evidence that it actually reduces cocaine cravings and dependence in non-treatment seekers too. Like they're not trying to cut out their use and they're actually using less. And so, and there's really strong neurobiological findings uh, that go along with this. But yeah, it's a great question. And there's no evidence for, for classic psychedelics to have any uh, addictive properties. Wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that, because I think it's very important for the general public to, to have this knowledge and understanding, too, the historical context of this as well. So um, I'm really appreciative of that. Absolutely. No, this is is fantastic. I'm, again, really looking forward to the continued research and the outcomes. Um, So far, what I've read and what I've seen here is very promising. And uh, I'm so grateful that you are participating in this and uh, continuing to, you know, get the word out there for those who are, you know, having you know, some concerns about uh, the traditional treatment model. And we can see that this could be quite complementary and, uh, you know, really uh, addressing the neurobiological realm and how significant, you know, the chemistry of the brain is and, and the beauty and the defenses and all the things that come with it. And, you know, we just talk about, you were mentioning neuroplasticity, you know, that that actually does, we start seeing the solidity of, you know, synapses in the mid 20s, right? So neuroplasticity needs to be a part of trauma work, and that we have this opportunity to rewire the brain in such an effective way um, is so important. So um, 
I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Khan, for coming and for uh, discussing this very important treatment methodology. And I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be hearing more from you and from the research uh, in the near future. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great uh, to to come on. And it's been it's just been lovely chatting with you, Michelle. Thank you. I appreciate it. And actually, I'm curious, how can people find out more about this and, and maybe get in contact with you? Do you have a website or any information that you could relate to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, you know, I, I would highly recommend looking actually at the MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies website. They they have their treatment manual posted there. So if you're really curious how this works, you can actually read the entire treatment manual. Um, and I think that's a really valuable experience. And they have a lot of um, other resources there, blog posts and bibliographies. Um, I would also like to say Shakruna, which is a South American-based organization that's really sort of trying to promote sort of like we had talked about this cultural competency and being in right relation with these plant medicines. Um, They're a great resource as as Psychedelic Today, which has a great podcast um, series and Psychedelic Support Network, which offers trainings for clinicians um, and education courses. So I definitely recommend looking that out, uh, looking that up. And yeah, my my email, I have many. <laughs> so you can just find me at uh, Amanda Khan, K-H-A-N dot PhD at gmail.com. And my website is Amanda Khan, PhD.com. So you can definitely look me up that way too. Wonderful. And we'll be sure to promote you and uh, make sure that we keep in touch because this is a uh, definitely ongoing uh, topic to be discussed. So I, again, looking forward to, to talking about more um, and hopefully having you back on. I love that. Yes. Thanks so much. Wonderful. Thank you. The information and advice offered is not intended to treat or diagnose and is not meant to replace any other professional consultation. If you'd like to know more about the San Diego Psychological Association, go to our website at sdpsych.org. That's S-D-P-S-Y-C-H dot org. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself and be well.